This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and extremely personal. Former politician Lisa Raitt knows the glory of power. She was a high-ranking member of Parliament who served as a federal cabinet minister in three portfolios and ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 2017. But the battle she is facing right now is enough to make even the strongest of the strong feel powerless. Her husband, Bruce Wood, was diagnosed with young-onset Alzheimer's disease in 2016, and after years of steady decline, his behavior has turned violent. Bruce is now hospitalized at Baycrest. Lisa Raitt has devoted the last five years of her life to loving, supporting, protecting, and caring for her husband. She joins us now in conversation. Thank you, Lisa, for being with us. Oh, thanks, Anne. I appreciate that. It's a lovely introduction. Well, and it, there's so much truth to it, and we have much to explore. Let's go back in time to the first signs that you noticed in Bruce that maybe there was a change in his cognitive behavior, in his physical and emotional behavior. It's all looked upon now in retrospect, right? So I have a very different lens now. I know what his disease is. So when I look back in time, where do I see it beginning? probably 2013, maybe 2012. Um, Bruce and I met in 2008. And it's not like he changed. I mean, people change after you meet them, after the first time you meet a person, you get to know each other. And sometimes there's a, a little bit of a change, the more comfortable you become with one another. But certainly by the time we got to 2012, Bruce was becoming to be a different kind of guy. He was far more angry, more irritable. Um, but I didn't notice any signs. I just thought, oh no, is this a, a sign that the relationship isn't doing very well and maybe we're not well suited for one another. And it really wasn't until 2016 when he was diagnosed did I have the luxury of looking back on the four years between 2012 and 2016 and go, well, those were, those were signs of dementia. But that wasn't about a relationship breaking down. That was about somebody's brain physically breaking down. And if I were to give you examples, everyone points to the, I forgot where the keys are, or I don't want to make a decision. For Bruce, the, the things that were, were bothersome that I noticed was his inability to spit certain words out. He was having a hard time finding words. Um, he didn't want to order from menus anymore. I did all the ordering. He didn't really make any executive decisions in the house. He stuck to the things that were well ingrained in his, in his lifestyle, which was making beautiful things in his workshop and fixing up things in the house and uh, going for drives and those kinds of things. But the other part of it too, Anne, and I look back on it, is he started making really irrational decisions, things that a normal person wouldn't be making in terms of buying a new truck on a whim or deciding they wanted to go on a vacation on the whim. Very odd things that he would decide. And uh, again, all part of dementia. You know, I hearken back to the Parliament Hill shooting and his lack of response created a response from you about the behavior, but you couldn't quite put your finger on it. What happened? Oh, yeah, I was, 
it's another one of those things that hindsight gives you 20-20 vision on. So in 2014, um, a shooter came into the house and I, I actually had my iPad in the room with me at the time and it was by fluke that I had forgotten to, to lock it up as we're supposed to lock up devices before we go into those rooms because everything in the room is confidential. And I had my iPad and I was able to get a message out to him. But you know, no response, no words of are you okay. I had to take it upon myself at 10 o'clock that night, like 12 hours after it all went down to call him and say, hey, I'm alive. And he went, what? Something going on today? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I guess there's something on television. Mm. And I was appalled. Um, I really was appalled because there was hours and hours and people didn't quite know what was going on and there was lots of rumors about a second shooter and stuff. Uh, my kids were concerned. My ex-husband was concerned. But my current partner didn't, didn't even register with him. And I didn't hold it against him. I just took it, as I said, as another example in that period of four years between 2012 and 2016 when I just thought, he, he doesn't care about me. And um, I really have to reevaluate this relationship. And here's a guy that was the Hamilton Port Authority president and CEO and many other uh, enormous accomplishments in terms of business and, and his trajectory. What happened that prompted you and Bruce to seek a diagnosis? And at what age did that happen for him? Yeah, well, neither of us sought the diagnosis. It was thrust upon us as a result of his work, colleagues noticing and his board of directors noticing uh, a very strong decline in his capabilities. story that I've never told, and I'll tell you this now, I was talking to my former chief of staff who was with me when I was the Minister of Transport. So I was the Minister of Transport in 2013-2014 timeframe, and Bruce was the CEO of the Hamilton Port Authority. He and I weren't allowed to talk business because there was a Chinese wall between us. I wasn't allowed to make decisions on his port because of our relationship. So he would end up talking to my chief of staff. And I remember there was a policy issue Bruce was in Ottawa visiting on, and he would go in to brief the chief of staff. And the chief came in to me later, and he just said, Lisa, you know, that was a very strange meeting. Minister, he didn't call me Lisa. Minister, that was a really strange meeting. And I don't know what to make of it. I, and I'm not really sure that Bruce was getting how Ottawa works. That's how he put it. And I kind of went, well, you know, he's not a political guy. Um, chalk it up to inexperience. And I just let it go. I didn't think anything of it. When the chief of staff and I were talking last week, he said to me, he goes, it was like talking to a brick wall. He didn't understand a thing I was trying to explain to him. And I just thought, boy, this is a really dumb guy. How did this dumb guy end up becoming the CEO of an organization? And he never said any of that to me at the time. I wasn't told that. I just, he just kind of glossed over it and said, you know, maybe he doesn't quite understand politics. But obviously Bruce was struggling with cognition issues at that point in time, and no one blew the whistle. I, nobody close to me told me that they were concerned about anything, and I certainly didn't see it in the house because he was able to, to mask any decision-making really easily by just deferring to me on everything. Um, he started refusing to come to Ottawa. I thought it was because he didn't like me. No, it was because he just couldn't use the airport anymore. Mm. He didn't know how to get through security. And I look back on those four years, and I just think, oh, the poor guy. But work found it. Work found it unacceptable. He wasn't participating in board meetings, not understanding concepts, not able to give speeches, 
Um, when he'd have to do press, it was a disaster. So they thought he had a substance abuse problem. So they brought him in to have a chat with him about his contract. And one of the directors just said, this is so bizarre. Let's, let's send him to a doctor. And they did. And the doctor immediately recognized the signs and sent us to a specialist. And we got our diagnosis very quickly, which is a different story than people who search for years and years and years to know why they're having such symptoms. For us, um, he lived with the symptoms for years. Such a young man as well. So when the diagnosis came, did he understand it? Did you understand it? Did you understand it? That is a very perceptive question. He was so far along in the disease that he's never been able to understand the fatality of it or what the stages look like. I, on the other hand, understood very clearly what the fatality was and what the stages looked like. Mm. And now Bruce has forgotten that he has this disease at all, probably forgot about it a year ago. Up until that point, he was angry he had a disease that caused him not to be able to work anymore, but his ability to look into the future and what it looked like. So we never got to have conversations about would you go into long-term care and what does that look like. Um, We were just living in the moment of making sure that his quality of life right from the beginning was going to be one of comfort and to the level of which he was able to actually function. When we come back, Lisa Raitt with the next steps in the journey with her husband, Bruce. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. If you're just joining us, we are in conversation with Lisa Raitt and her husband's battle with young onset Alzheimer's. So 2016, the diagnosis is laid out before the two of you. What did you do next? Did you want Bruce to stay with you in the home? You had a, a, a so much going on in your own life uh, in terms of politics at that point. How did you make sure that he stayed protected, stayed supported, and was was kept safe? Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, he didn't have symptoms. He was probably in stage four of, of seven stages, so very much able to be independent, could still um, make himself coffee, could still make himself toast, those kinds of things. Couldn't cook a meal, but certainly uh, could nourish himself if he was alone. I fell into the habit of taking him with me to Ottawa, or uh, if I had to be in Ottawa for more than one day, I would take him with me. But if, uh, if it was a normal week, I would only spend one night a week in Ottawa, and he was good staying overnight for one night a week. I was comfortable with that. He was able to do it. He had our dog, and, and he was puttering around his barn, and he could watch television and still use the television, and I was in contact with him daily. So the stress at that point was for me trying to keep one foot at home here in Milton and the other foot in Ottawa and getting my work done while I was still really worried about him. But it was only one night a week, so it was okay. If I had been a member of Parliament for Vancouver, I I actually don't know if I could have done it because 
it was too far away. Being an hour away on on planes that went on the hour gave me so much flexibility. I was able to to have that work-life balance, for lack of a better word. So um, that trucked along. We traveled. We visited people that we knew. We we enjoyed we enjoyed life. We you know we did what we could do together. I, we spent so much time together, and and in fact, it stayed that way, and right up until May of 2020. Um, COVID came, we got locked down, we drove around, we, we built a deck, we put in a hot tub, and we really enjoyed life. But then his deterioration happened in his behaviors, and that's what has kind of forced us into the situation where we're in now where he's hospitalized at Baycrest. Are you comfortable describing his behaviors and what you and your sons had to do in order to protect him and protect yourselves in the home? I am. I am. And thank you for asking that. Look, from the beginning, when Bruce was diagnosed, you asked me, what do we do? Well, we were public about it. Um, After we digested it for about four months, Bruce wanted to be able to talk about it. We went on different television shows. He did talks with me at various Alzheimer's events. And his advice was always, do everything you can to um, adjust your diet, take the medications, do whatever you can to live a good life. And that was always his message, and that we needed to talk about Alzheimer's. And, and that's exactly what we did. Even into 2015, uh, 2019, 2018, we went out to Alberta and did an event out there with with some folks at a, a group called UQuest, which is doing remarkable work with exercise. And he was still um, trying, trying to, to be part of the conversation. But what happened in May was he started seeing in the reflections a stranger. He didn't think it was himself. And he thought it was somebody else. Now, at the beginning, it was a buddy. And they would have long conversations for hours, really. And they would laugh and was him, but he would laugh, and it was as if he was carrying on a conversation, and we thought it was cute. And then he became more afraid, and then I had to cover up the windows, I had to take down the mirrors, and getting in a car was difficult because he would see his reflection, because then he wanted the guy to go away, and he felt the guy was trying to hurt him or hurt me. And that really started uh, painful behaviors of him attacking inanimate objects, for lack of a better word. So he took a pair of hedge clippers and went and bashed the side of our new truck in because he was mad that the guy was sitting in his truck. Um, The guy was his own reflection. And he did the same thing at our doors, put one of our doors through the wall and destroyed the, uh, the drywall because he was trying to slam the door hard enough to get rid of the guy who was in the window. And... That, uh, that continued on for a little bit, and that's when I sought medical intervention to try to take away the, um, the, they don't call it hallucinations, what they say, it's a misidentification issue. So if there's medication to help it, I was seeking it out. So we stabilized him a little bit. The anger was there, but the anger was always at something else or someone else. As we got into the fall, his anger turned to me, and... In November, I, uh, I had to seek more help from his doctors. He wasn't sleeping through the night when he would get up in the middle of the night and pace around. Um, he would get frustrated, and he was fighting demons that weren't in reflections anymore. They were just in his head. And I would seek safety from, well, not safety at the point. I would say this. I would, I would seek a quiet place where I could sleep because broken sleep is really 
difficult for people, and especially it's, it's difficult for everybody. So I, I went to the couch and I lied down, and he came over and he was so angry that I had removed myself from our room, uh, he punched me. And that was a wake-up call. That was a real shocker for all of us. So we started at the beginning of November with different kinds of medication, hoping to cure his restlessness at night, hoping to take away the demons that he was seeing during the day and fighting with, and calming him down uh, on his aggression. What happened on New Year's Day? So it got worse over Christmas. The medication started to impact how he walked. He was stooped over. His mouth hung open. He was drooling. Clearly, the medications weren't at the appropriate balance. His doctor saw him online in a visit before Christmas, and he said, I'm going to take him off some of these drugs, Lisa, because he's exhibiting symptoms, shuffling. He's going to, he was falling. It wasn't working, and I agreed. I concurred with the treatment. So he started to wean him off of his antipsychotic medications. And there are two ways in which Alzheimer's patients will react negatively in an agitated manner. One is in response to something that's happening that they don't like. And you see this in toddlers. You tell a toddler not to do something or you try to make them do something, they'll say no, and they'll grab your hands or swat away at you. That's a behavioral response. That's normal. And we have ways to deal with that by diverting or trying to figure out another way. The other kind of aggressions, though, are are ones that are seeded, that come out of nowhere, that are more psychotic in nature, and that are dangerous. So on New Year's Day, it wasn't a behavioral response that caused me to call 911. It was the fact that Bruce had decided that I was the enemy, and he was using skills from his hockey playing days and his football days in order to try to pin me up against a wall or push me around. And after the third time he kind of came roaring at me with all of his strength, I thought, this guy's going to put me through a window if, if I don't get some control here. And my 16-year-old came into the room and he was going to intervene and I thought that would be a disaster waiting to happen. So I called 911 because it wasn't a behavioral response. It was an actual aggressive response due to probably him being weaned off his psychotic drugs. How did you feel as you were making that call? I cried on the phone. I mean, you're calling 911. If anyone has ever had to call 911, I mean, the operators are wonderful and empathetic. And the minute you hear that empathetic of concerned voice on the other side, my immediate reaction was start to cry. And, you know, they wanted to make sure that I was safe. I said, yes, I'm safe and I can stay on the phone. And But they could hear him yelling at me in the background. And my son was making sure that he didn't get too close to me. Bruce didn't get too close to me. And... Um, it, it felt like within five minutes there was a police officer at my front door. And, uh, you know, he came in the house and Bruce was calmer. He wasn't raging at us. But at any moment he could also go back to being the way he was before the police arrived. And I explained the situation to the police officer. Paramedics came. Um, I felt like I had... Uh, it was entertainment for the village that day. There was a lot of police cars and, and ambulances around. But he's a big guy. He's he's 6'2", and he's about 240 pounds. And they needed to make sure that they were safe. 
when they took him out of the house and, and brought him to the hospital because I knew that this was a medical issue. He was having uh, adverse reactions to drugs that he was being weaned off of and he needed help. So I felt, I felt safe that the police were there, um, and I, but I knew I was doing the right thing. I didn't feel guilt at that point in time. Lisa, he is hospitalized at Baycrest. What is going to happen next, and, and how will he spend the rest of his life? Mm. When he was admitted to hospital first, he went to Milton Emergency, and Milton Emergency just didn't have the capabilities to deal with him and his aggressiveness, so he was put in restraints, and he was kept behind a locked door with security on the door monitoring him. And that was the biggest gut punch I've ever had in my entire life when I went in to see him. It was really tough. It would be very So from very there, tough. they moved him to Oakville Trafalgar Hospital to the adult psychiatric wing so they could have him under controlled observation. And in both places, he received excellent care. And I'm eternally grateful to the nurses that were there to help him. By the time he reached his, his end at Oakville Hospital, he was allowed to wander around and he was being aided and he was having those behavioral responses, but the psychotic ones really had dissipated. Even though if he becomes angry, even if it's a behavioral response, he's a big guy and he needs to be dealt with appropriately. And then on Tuesday, he was transferred to Baycrest Hospital where he will be treated holistically, both medically, neurologically, behaviorally, he'll get the full nine yards in terms of trying to bring him back to a stable um, baseline of where his behavior should be. And then from there, we look to long-term care, specifically a place that has experience in dealing with behavioral um, responsive behaviors. Lisa, I'm so sorry to, to put you through this. And I know that it is important that you get your message out, but I have to ask you this, and forgive me if it, if it upsets you. What's it like seeing the physical man you love, knowing that the person inside is no longer there? Oh, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. So here's the way I deal with it. I mourn every day the loss that I've experienced, and I always will. But I still have somebody physically in front of me that needs my attention, my care, and my love, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I'm going to enjoy every moment that I have in whatever way of, of the Bruce I do have today. Because even though when I saw him in that Milton hospital, I was shocked and saddened, I still went right into care mode, and I wanted to make sure he was comfortable. And that's what I'm going to do once I have the ability to visit him again, because with COVID, you have to be in a 14-day uh, isolation period, and that's currently what we're living with. So I'll, I will go. I will go about 20 days before seeing him again. Um, from the time I last saw him until when I'll see him again. So it's um, it's emotional, yeah, but can. it's called ambiguous loss. It's ambiguous grief. You have it with you every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is what every person who is caring for somebody with Alzheimer's is experiencing. It's limbo. But I still have to make sure that I enjoy the moments that I'll have with them. And I do expect that I'm still going to have moments of smiles with them in the future once we get them stabilized. The word dignity comes to mind when I hear you speaking about how you feel about him and the care that you are hoping for him in the future. 
Well, it, it, one of the nurses on the, on the Oakville unit told me a story about how she had read about Bruce being who was once the CEO of the Hamilton Port Authority. And when he became difficult one time when he was trying to change his pants or shoes or something, she said to him, hey, weren't you the big boss at the, at the Hamilton Port Authority? Tell me about that. You were the big chief, weren't you? <laughs> and he smiled and he calmed down. So yeah, dignity is really important. They they still are the person that you love. They just parts of their brain are, are missing. Yeah. Are there any moments of clarity with Bruce? Do you see him when you are able to be with him or the time that you have just spent with him before he was moved to hospital and then to Baycrest? Do you see just glimmers of the old Bruce at all? No, I don't. I, I, honey, I looked back at my photo album last night, and I have a lot of video because I know I was capturing some of the last moments I'd get of them. And I would say that I lost uh, the clarity of the Bruce I knew probably the second week of November around his birthday. And then after that, it's it's somebody I love still, but definitely not the the you know, the cognition in his eyes of, of who he's with in that moment. But a lot of it could be medic associated with the medication he's on. And I have not lost hope that I'll, I'll get that back again. He'll always know me to be a loving caregiver. Will he ever know me, you know, as, as I was Lisa in the past? I doubt it, but that's okay. What is your message today? Okay, the message is clear. The reason why I, I feel that I'm speaking about this so much is because how shocked I am at the path we ended up taking. I probably did, I did a lot of research when, I, when he was first diagnosed, but I never understood what stages five, six, and seven of Alzheimer's would look like. So my message is this. If you are unfortunately uh, on, the, on the end of one of these diagnoses, then do educate yourself very clearly and not just gloss over what may happen. Try to find people who have gone through it who will explain to you what has happened. Reach out to the community. Go online. Find the, the Facebook pages of groups that are out there. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of uh, online help. And hear the stories of the people going through it because my biggest takeaway is how similar Bruce's story is to other people other families who have experienced young onset Alzheimer's, especially with a man in their 50s. It seems like we all follow the same path. Perhaps I would have been better prepared for New Year's Day if I had known a little bit more or been a little bit more cognizant, uh, you know, personally understanding what, uh, what was going to happen. Second message, and if I may, is um, when you, if you get a diagnosis like this, live your life, cram all the living you can into the first two years because you do start to lose them. It's not, it's not something you can put off. It does happen. And then um, the last one is just live in the day. Hmm. Yeah. And if there, is a, if there is a case where your safety is at risk, you must call 911 and make yourself safe. Lisa Raitt, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us in conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, Anne. 
If you need help, please contact alzheimer.ca. I'm Ann Romer. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.